Welcome to the Arate Podcast. My name is Richard Triggs, and today's guest is David Pratt, CEO of the Queensland Symphony Orchestra. It's wonderful to have you along today, and I'm really excited about this episode because it's the first time in these series of interviews that I'm interviewing a CEO prior to them actually commencing in their role. David is an Australian who's currently based in the US, who will be starting as CEO of the Queensland Symphony Orchestra in mid-September. So it's great to be able to speak to him prior to commencement and get his views on his initial goals and his vision for where he wants to take the organisation in the future. Before I introduce David to you formally, let me briefly introduce myself for those people who are new to the Arate podcast. My name is Richard Triggs and I'm the managing partner of Arate Executive. And we recruit CEOs, senior leaders and non-executive directors for our clients throughout Australia. We also provide a range of career coaching and advocacy solutions. So if you're actively looking for a new role, or looking to fill a role within your organisation, I'd welcome the opportunity to have us talk to you. Let me now introduce to you David Pratt. David Pratt is an Australian who's had a very interesting career working across three distinctly different industries. After completing a Bachelor of Arts majoring in Recreation Management, he worked in that industry in Victoria before moving into the film industry, which saw him move to Los Angeles, where he was the general manager of Ausfilm and also the founding president of Australians in Film. He then returned to Australia and having a passion for orchestral music, took his career in that direction, working in a number of roles here in Australia before returning to the US as executive director of the Savannah Philharmonic Orchestra and Chorus, and most recently as Executive Director of the Santa Barbara Symphony Orchestra. He has just accepted the role of CEO with the Queensland Symphony Orchestra starting in mid-September 2016. Sit back and enjoy this conversation with David Pratt. <laughs> So, David, welcome to the Arate podcast. It's fantastic to have you along. And I know that I'm talking to you from Brisbane. What time is it where you are at home? It is just after 3 p.m. Okay. here in uh, Santa Barbara, California. Uh-huh. So it's still quite a civilized hour. That's good. Yes, exactly. Uh, excellent. Well, look, uh, David, uh, I appreciate you taking the time to have a chat to us today. Perhaps just to begin with, if you could just let the people listening in know your current range of professional responsibilities. I am currently and actually just finishing up uh, a role as the uh, executive director of the Santa Barbara Symphony, which is the symphony that covers Santa Barbara County uh, here on the on the central coast or the most northern part of Southern California, mm -hmm. uh, depending on uh, the way you look at it. Um, and I've been in this position for just over a year and a half. Okay. And I basically am responsible for leading the entire organization. Right. And so executive director is a, 
you know, a title that's sometimes used in Australia, but would that be equivalent to the use of the title Chief Executive Officer here? Yep, same thing. Right. Okay, great. And uh, and you mentioned that you're just winding up in that role, so you're, you're coming back to uh, Australia to take on a new role. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I always had a long-term plan um, that I would end up back in Australia at some stage leading a, a larger kind of performing arts organization, specifically an orchestra or something to do with music, as it's one of my, my biggest passions. And um, I had a stint in Queensland uh, around about 10 years ago and spent some time in Brisbane and uh, spent some time listening to the, uh, the Queensland Symphony Orchestra. So I've kept uh, close um, interest in, in what's been happening with that orchestra and in Queensland. And when this position came up uh, earlier this year, um, this, uh, there was no way I couldn't put my hat in the ring. Mm-hmm. And how did the role come to your attention? Actually, I was contacted by a headhunter that had been um, had been um, uh, employed by the Queensland Symphony Orchestra by the board to to do a, an international search. Right. And he had been speaking to people in Australia. My name came up a couple of times, uh-huh. and so that's where the first call came from from him. And um, we had a, a number of, of different discussions over a period of a few weeks and uh, decided that, that, yes, I would, uh, I would definitely um, be very interested in the role. Okay, fantastic. Well, I'm very keen to uh, talk more about that uh, later in this conversation. But before we get there, uh, let's go back to, you know, your early life and tell us about where you were born and your early life, mum, dad, brothers and sisters, uh, uh, schooling, etc. Okay, well, we moved around a bit because my father was an army officer. Okay. Um, I tell people I'm really a country boy at heart because I was, I was born in Bendigo uh, yeah. in the state of Victoria. I'm actually a twin. I have a twin sister. Okay. Uh, she's seven minutes younger than me. And we, we have an older sister who's only 20 months older than uh, right. us two. So we're very much more close in age, really. Yes. Uh, but we moved to Sydney when I was five. I spent my primary school years in Sydney five till 12 approximately, and then we moved to Canberra, and I spent my high school years in Canberra. And my twin and I both decided that we didn't want to stay in Canberra uh, for university, um, and my older sister was in Sydney, but we decided to go south to Melbourne. Right. And uh, she went to study fashion design uh, at RMIT, and I originally, I mean, I had various different ideas about what, what I wanted to study. Um, I always had a great love of music and studied music all through high school. Mm-hmm. I, I played the clarinet and piano. I wasn't particularly good at it. Right. Which is probably the reason why I, didn't, I decided not to study music, actually, at, at a university level. Mm-hmm. But um, uh, one of my great loves is always anything to do with the outdoors. So I ended up applying for um, a... Um, Applying for the, which was Footscray Institute of Technology, which is now um, the, the Victoria University of Technology, mm-hmm. for a degree in recreation management. Right. So my twin and I went south to Melbourne, and that's really where I spent about the next eight or nine years. Um, and I finished that degree. I did some travelling uh, around the world, like a lot of Australians do after uh, after university. I actually worked in the US for a while. Um, fell in love with the United States. And uh, I came back and started working and then also went back to do a postgraduate degree 
uh, or postgraduate diploma, I should say, in business administration, which I did at Swinburne University of Technology. Hmm. So just and, before we uh, move on from there, David, I'm, I'm interested, um, your older sister, what career did she move into? She originally went to nursing. Right. And, and then she left nursing and she also came south to Melbourne and did a degree in psychology at okay. uh, Trobe. So, um, right. And so your father, who um, I imagine, you know, uh, through his career and in going into Canberra, was still in the military? Well, he, he was to, for some of that time. Um, he, at the age, he must have been in his early 40s at the time, I can't remember exactly, uh, went into business okay. um, and in, kind of information, really in IT, uh, information management, and started a company uh, and ran that right up till he retired and right. ended up working around the world. So very okay, successful. Sure. And so what do you think it was about your household that, uh, you know, uh, uh, a military person moving into IT and yet, um, you know, his children uh, had a very sort of artistic orientation? Was that more of your mother's influence or, or what were your thoughts about that? You know, it, it is kind of interesting because you're right. My, my mother was a teacher, a career teacher, and very passionate about it. Uh, both of them academics, both of them uh, master's degrees and doctorates and things like that. Right. And um, I think all of us um, were very interested in studying at, you know, at, uh, at tertiary level and, and postgraduate level. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think the influence on us as kids, uh, you know, music and the arts and th- those kinds of endeavors had a real impact on all of us. Mm-hmm. So I think it's no surprises that that um, we ended up in that. My mother always said to me, you know, do something you're really passionate about. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, in fact, if you would have seen from my resume, I've, I've, I've really had three careers in some respects in three different areas. But it's really a reflection of what I'm most passionate about. Yeah, so. great. So uh, you uh, travelled around, you returned to Australia, uh, you did some uh, uh, business qualifications. And so where did things go from there? You know, I worked uh, firstly for a consultant um, in my last year of university at, at Footscray Institute of Technology. I worked actually for the Melbourne City Council and the Recreation Department mm-hmm. a couple of days a week and uh, worked for a terrific guy that ran that department. And he set up a consultancy. So when I got back from overseas, I worked for him uh, for about six months. And then I landed a job uh, basically as the administrator across all of the recreation camps for the state of Victoria and the mm-hmm. Department of Recreation. And um, I did that for actually about six years. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, that's really a reflection of, you know, my degree and, and something that really interested me. Mm-hmm. And, and then th- things changed dramatically after that. Um, it was very interesting. Out of nowhere, um, I got a call one day from a gentleman who used to run that department and he had gone across to a very senior role uh, working for the Premier at the time, which was Jeff Kennett. Yes. And he said to me, I'd like you to come and work for us for a year on a special project we're implementing across the public service management initiative. And I kind of thought, well, why would I want to do that? Mm. <laughs> you know? <laughs> and I remember going home and talking to my father, and he said, you know, that's really good experience. Um really good experience in terms of government and working with the Premier and, and those things. So I did that for a year and I like I really enjoyed it. I learned a lot. I learned a lot about government and what goes on. Um, and while, while I was in that position, I met a woman who was the head of Film Victoria. And 
she just came to me one day and said, I want to offer you a job. Mm. Uh, we have a new film office for the state of Victoria. Uh, it's kind of fledgling. It only has three months worth of funding. Um, but would you be interested? And mm-hmm. Film is something that is one of my passions. And um, I put my hand up and uh, that took me off in that really that, that career direction for quite a number of years. And okay. that's how I ended up really eventually in Los Angeles. But I ran that for almost three years. And what was it uh, that she saw in you that, uh, I mean, obviously it wasn't your professional background, but there must have been some traits in you that she saw that encouraged her to approach you about that opportunity. In, you know, looking back in hindsight, what do you think that that was? I think it was vision, passion, strategy, and the ability to execute. Okay. So pretty um, much universal qualities that you'd look for in any kind of uh, strategic business leader. Yeah, absolutely. And I was, you know, I was, I was fairly young at the time. I was, I think, around 29 okay. or 30. And in fact, it was that role that was really my first, what I believe, my first kind of leadership role where I was leading a small team mm-hmm. and in charge, you know, I had full responsibility for that, uh, that office. And what that office really did was, um, it's based on the kind of film commission model in the US, but it's really a business development um, office that okay. works with the hand in hand with the with the film and television industry to promote it uh, nationally and internationally to attract business to mm-hmm. the state. Mm-hmm. That's essentially what I did, mm-hmm. um, and uh, we worked predominantly, well, obviously in in Victoria. Um, we worked with a national body uh, at that time was called something completely different. It's now called Ausfilm, the, uh, the Australian Film and Television Office. Yes. Um, but we worked predominantly in Northeast Asia and uh, in Los Angeles. Okay. And uh, I always laugh and joke about this. I remember I started that role and six weeks later I was on a plane to Los Angeles meeting with a whole bunch of uh, studio executives and producers. And, um, yeah, it was it was a, a baptism of fire, you could say. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I knew enough about the industry and I'd done a lot of research about the people I was meeting with that uh, I thought I can, I can get through this even though I've been in the job for six weeks. But um, we, we were quite successful in that role. We attracted quite a bit of business from the U.S., um, which was great. And um, I got very involved in the national organization too, which was originally set up by Austrade. Uh, it was really uh, a governing body to get all the different states uh, and the industry in Australia work together to promote Australia internationally and predominantly in Los Angeles. And can I ask, you're talking about promoting Australia as a destination for uh, films to be made, or are you talking about promoting Australian films into the US market or both? Okay, predominantly we're talking about promoting uh, attracting film and television production work yes. to Australia okay, because sure. it creates jobs. Um, of course, at the time, the Australian dollar was was low. We didn't have any tax incentives at that time, uh-huh. um, and that changed over years. But it's predominantly getting work into Australia. Mm-hmm. And then by default, you're promoting really all elements of the business. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're interested in Australian films, filmmakers, writers, directors, the whole shebang. Mm-hmm. Um, but the core focus was to get work out of the US into Australia. And I imagine, you know, for a lot of people listening who are, uh, would look from the outside as this being an extremely glamorous and exciting industry. But you mentioned uh, you went through a baptism of fire. You know, what were some of the big challenges that you faced personally, you know, going and working in a different country and in a different industry and, and in what 
is uh, no doubt a notoriously uh, cutthroat business. Yeah, I, I always tell people my best learning uh, happened in uh, in the film business in Los Angeles because it's such a tough cutthroat business. Mm-hmm. Um, but the first thing is being Australian, I always say opened up the door. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a great fascination with Australia and the US, and there still is all these years later that I've been working here and working in and out of the US. You know, 30 seconds, you, you, you basically have about 30 seconds to get the person's attention. Right. Um, and really, it's understanding kind of how they communicate culturally. Uh, it's very different. Uh, yes, yes, yes often means no, no, no. Mm-hmm. Um, the thing about Los Angeles, they'll never say no to your face, but you get to understand the signals to what really is yes and what is no. Right. Um, but we had something to offer. We generally had something to offer. I mean, the, the, the film business itself, uh, our, our film and television business in the U.S. has a long, a long kind of history and relationship, particularly with, uh, with actors and filmmakers working mm-hmm. in the U.S. So it's a fascination. And, you know, we, we generally have a fantastic um, industry and infrastructure down there. We had a, a dollar that was falling. So there were, there were great financial incentives. So we had a lot to offer, which really helped us, uh, I think, um, to, to work. Mm-hmm. I always tell people too, one of the things I learned um, uh, very quickly there too is trying to get the right people on the phone. Mm. Um, you, you know, you, you've got to have the right connections. And I learned that if I called their offices after 7 or 8 p.m., they would answer their own phones. Right. So <laughs> that actually made a huge difference, believe it or not, in actually getting people on the phone. Sure. Because that's, that's the biggest challenge is actually building those networks and relationships. Doesn't say much for work-life balance, though, does it? <laughs> There's not really a work-life balance in no. Los Angeles. There yeah. isn't uh, So you were, um, you were uh, in the U.S., uh, you know, in uh, L.A., it looks like, for probably, you know, almost 10 years before returning to Australia. Yes, I was. So, you know, I, I, when I, as I said, I was on that uh, national body and I left the film office when uh, there was a gentleman over here that actually started the, 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 um, the, the film office in Los Angeles, but he didn't last very long. And um, I just put my hand up and said, I'd, I'd love the job and this is what I like to do with it and this is my vision for it. And um, they gave me the job. So that's how I ended up in Los Angeles in, in, in 1997. Mm-hmm. And I ran that, yeah, for a good part of 10 years, really, predominantly in that role but you'll see, too, about halfway through that um, period, I started another organization. Um, and it's based on the, the BAFTA model, which is the British Academy of Film, Television, and the Arts. Yes. And they have a long history in Los Angeles, um, BAFTA, BAFTA Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. And I used to get a lot of BAFTA screenings and BAFTA events. And they're predominantly about promoting uh, British films and British television and British filmmakers and British actors. And I thought to myself, you know, there is so much interest in what content is coming out of Australia and who the hottest actors are and who's doing what. We could start a similar organisation for Australia. Mm -hmm. And that's really where the idea came around to create Australians in film. It was originally called uh, the Los Angeles Film and Television Association, and we changed it about a year or two later to Australians in film. It's based on the BAFTA model. And um, really, I sat down with two colleagues. One was um, an attorney, film attorney, and another one was a a business affairs producer um, working in the business. We all had different contacts. 
we sat down. I wrote the business plan uh, for three to five years. Got some seed funding from uh, the Australian consulate in Washington, D.C. And I said to my colleagues, we need to launch this on something big. Mm-hmm. And uh, she knew the head of uh, 20th Century Fox. I had some relationships with Baz Luhrmann. I had a friend who was very close to Nicole Kidman. And uh, Moulin Rouge was kind of coming up. So we approached them and said, this is what we'd like to do. We'd like to launch this organization uh, and have a screening of Moulin Rouge before it's released and create a big event around that um, to to start this organization going. And they agreed. Mm-hmm. They all agreed, which is fantastic. Mm-hmm. So we had screening. And then following the screening, we had a big event at the Consul General's, at the, uh, uh, yeah, the Consul General's house in uh, Beverly Hills. And to come to the event, you had to pay for membership to the organization. Right. So we automatically had a membership base. Fantastic. So that's how it started um, 15 years ago, actually. And it's funny, I got contacted by, uh, by Australians in Film just last week to uh, ask whether I'd come to a, a kind of a f- celebration next Friday right. in Los Angeles uh, for the f- kind of 15-year celebration of the screening of, of uh, Moulin Rouge and, and the start of the organisation, which, of course, is going gangbusters 15 years mm-hmm. later. Mm-hmm. And so given that, you know, obviously uh, you've got some great successes over there, no doubt you're building a strong personal brand within the industry. Uh, the stars were aligning in that regard. What was it that, you know, brought you back to Australia then in 2006? You know, it's really interesting. When, when I, I decided, you know, it was time to leave the film office, I'd been there for seven or eight years and it was time to hand the reins to someone else. I'd, I'd done everything and, and then a whole bunch more. And this, uh, this Australian film organization was going well. I've been running it for about four or five years. And I took some time off. I went, I, I turned 40 and I came home to see my twin. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, I'm not staying for very long. I'm going to Bali because I'm going to go surfing in Bali. Right. But I did. And I thought, I sat, sat on a beach in Bali, actually. It was kind of funny. And thought long and hard about what I wanted to do. And I thought, you know, I'm just going to take some time off because yeah. I'm not really sure what I want to do with my career. I don't think I want to stay in Los Angeles mm-hmm. um, permanently. And um, I did. I took a year off. I went to live in Barcelona um, in Spain. Uh, my father's British. I had a British passport, so an EC passport as well. So there was no issue about staying in a country like that. And I'd been learning Spanish in Los Angeles for a number of years. So I thought I'm going to make my some some useful time. So I enrolled myself in classes and uh, took Spanish classes every morning. Mm-hmm. And um, spent my afternoons discovering Barcelona and doing some traveling as well in Europe. Right. And my plan was to come back to Los Angeles and um, decide, you know, what I was going to do. And, you know, as fate has it, I was water skiing actually um, just south of Barcelona in a place called Sitges and had quite a bad water skiing accident and um, spent some time in hospital, came back to Australia because I needed some more surgery. Right. And um, recovered from all that. And I thought, well, what am I going to do with my career? And I started to get um, calls from a lot of people in the film business in Australia, um, basically asking me to do very similar work that I've been doing for a number of years. And I didn't want to do that. And um, I've always been very passionate about classical music. It's an important part of my life. It's been in my life since I was a, a young child. And... Um, I started thinking about 
maybe doing something in music. And again, out of nowhere, I get a call from a friend of my mother's who was at the Sydney Opera House for many years. And she had left, but I got a call to run a number of events around the visit of the Vienna Philharmonic. Mm -hmm. And she ran me and said, I told them I can't do it, but I told them you could do it. So get to Sydney tomorrow. I went up to Sydney Mm -hmm. and I did that for just, it was a short-term contract for two months. While I was there, uh, I met uh, some people um, who were looking for a general manager for the Australian Festival of Chamber Music in Townsville. Mm -hmm. Um, They'd been through a search process, weren't that happy with what they found. And so I flew up to Brisbane and met with the chair and her and I hit it off. And um, that's really how all the, the music stuff really started. Right. right. So were you, uh, were you based in Townsville then? I was. <laughs> so I then, uh, I then went up to Townsville um, to, to manage that festival. Right. And they had a new music director as well, a new artistic director, Piers Lane, who's a Queenslander but based in London. And um, I, my, my remit was very clear. I always joke with uh, the, the, the board chair, who I'm still very close to. I said, do you remember our first meeting, Mark? And she looks and smiles, going, no. And I said, you pointed your finger at me and said, you lose one set, I'm going to fire you. Um, they had, And I kinda, we kind of joke about it. They had a couple of years of some significant losses. So really uh, my, my job there was to, was to create a... Um, I suppose, a new business plan for the organization and, and put it on the right road to ensuring it, were, it could grow um, uh, from an artistic perspective but also from a, from a business perspective. Right. And oh, ensure that, that it, uh, it had operating surpluses. Okay. So. While you're talking, I'm thinking of those uh, fashion labels that there should say something like uh, London, New York, Paris, and your career is Los Angeles, Barcelona, Townsville. <laughs> How did you find uh, moving to regional Queensland uh, as somebody who went and lived in Cairns for four years? Uh, you know, I know what uh, what that's like, but I imagine it must have been quite a change of scenery for you. You know, it's funny you should mention that because pe- people look at me and just horrify when they see some of the, some of the you know places I uh, I've moved around to, and I, and I remember my Sydney friends going, "You're moving to where and why?" <laughs> I'm like, because it's a great opportunity, and I love music. Yeah, I think that's really a reflection of my personality. I I, I tend to embrace change. Um, I I've I love to travel. I've moved around a lot of my career, and I'm a bit of an adventure seeker. So all those things that you know attract me, and I thought here's a great opportunity to work with Piers Lane. Mm-hmm. Uh, to to take uh, a festival that's about at that stage was about sixteen or seventeen years uh, been running. Um, I just saw some great opportunities uh, to really uh, promote it on a national uh, a national level and attract a national audience. It is the Australian Festival of Chamber Music, mm-hmm. uh, attracting phenomenal musicians from around the world, phenomenal programming. And hey, it's winter in the tropics. What yeah. a great place to visit! Sure, absolutely. And, um, I just saw a great opportunity, and I have to say, I really enjoyed living there. I lived right on the beach, mm-hmm. of course, um, and I enjoyed my uh, my my time off on Magnetic Island and exploring uh, the, the the mountains behind Townsville and up the coast. Yeah, but more than anything, it was a very rewarding experience um, to take something that uh, is 17 years old and um, basically. Um, see some significant growth in a very short period of time mm-hmm. and to work on, on really um, ensuring the, the festival had a, a national audience and not just a Queensland audience. Mm-hmm. And so you were there for a couple of years and then back yes. to Sydney. 
Yeah, that was kind of unexpected too. I, I, I got a call from um, a recruiting firm out of Sydney. I actually knew the woman that started it. And she said, would you be interested in um, applying for a job at the Sydney Symphony? It's the head of uh, basically commercial programming. And um, I've always thought I'd love to work for an orchestra in a senior role of some sort. So it interested me. It's funny because exactly the same time, I was also approached to be the general manager of the Sydney Film Festival. Okay. And so it was that, that quandary for that moment, like, okay, I've started this music um, tack, do I go back to film mm. or do I continue with this music tact? And when I met with both organizations and really looked at it, I my heart was really in the music side. Mm. I've started this and it really interests me. Um, I feel like I've got some valuable skills and um, I've always wanted to work for an orchestra. And, uh, and I remember as a child, vividly, uh, at age nine, when the Sydney Opera House opened, because that's the home of the Sydney, of the Sydney mm-hmm. Symphony. And I always thought I'd like to work there one day. Mm-hmm. So my, my childhood dream came true. Mm-hmm. And um, I took that position and worked there for just a year. Um, and I returned to the US uh, in 2009 um, because I have an American partner. And, and some personal reasons um, at the time it was a very difficult decision, but I had to return to, to basically to the US. Mm-hmm. So I only spent a year with the Sydney Symphony, but it was a very fulfilling year. I learned a lot, um, did some some wonderful programming, uh, which was very successful. Um, but that really also um, was the thing that really got me interested in in leading leading an orchestra or being involved in a very senior role with an orchestra. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I, I enjoyed it immensely. Um, wonderful team of people. Uh, great musicians and um, a phenomenal place to work for for twelve months. Mm-hmm. And I'm interested. Uh, you mentioned, you know, this sort of uh, pull between uh, working within the uh, orchestral space and working within the film space. Now, obviously, they're two completely different industries uh, and uh, very different in the way they operate and so on. But if you had to, you know compare the you know the style of personality of the work between working in uh, orchestral music and, and working in film both the arts you know what are some of the uh, you know the real differences I, I think the, let's talk about firstly let's talk about the similarities because what I found uh, interesting about working across a broad sections of you know of culture or the arts is artistic people, whether it's a musician, an actor, a writer, a director, uh, a singer, they all very much think alike. Mm-hmm. They're very passionate about their craft. They're all about honing their craft and doing the best job possible. And that's their, their focus. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think the difference between uh, working in music and, say, in the various areas of the film side of it, um, with the, 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 the orchestral side, you've got, a conductor and the musicians, um, which I find a little easier to work with from, from, a, from a business perspective, as opposed to working with a film director, a film producer, um, and all the various heads of departments there, um, that can be in conflict. Okay. And uh, I actually find working in the music space um, to be more satisfying from a work perspective. So just to make sure I understand that, so you're saying in the orchestral space, 
it's a large team of people, but they're working synergistically towards achieving one outcome. In the film industry, you've got a bunch of disparate people with different agendas who are potentially, you know, conflicted. Yeah, couldn't have said it better myself. Oh, That's good. exactly it. <laughs> right. Yeah, I imagine that that uh, that must be a uh, you know a, a tremendously different culture to try and manage. Then, where when you know if you move it into a corporate sort of uh, perspective, you know, running a business where essentially everybody's on the same team versus trying to manage a bunch of different consultants, basically, who are who are all trying to look after their own. Uh, agendas and interests as a priority as compared to the others. Uh, that must be very challenging. Yeah, and I, I think too, to be honest with you, uh, on the film side, and this is my experience generally uh, with the film business in Los Angeles, it tends to be more of a fear-based culture. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I don't think, you know, the orchestral world or certainly my experience in that world and uh, in music is is that that culture it's it's a, it's a different vibe mm-hmm. um although again artists kind of all all think the same way and i think one of the things i love about the work that i do it's about bringing those two areas together which is is the artistic world with the business world and working together as one mm-hmm. um and i think when they don't work together synergistically that's when you get into trouble mm-hmm. um and i think that's one of the greatest opportunities and or challenges for any ceo working kind of in the, in, in the arts is how you bring those two together and working together as one. Mm-hmm. Okay, great. Let's uh, start to talk now about, you know, what's happening for you now and moving forward. So uh, you are about to commence your role as the CEO of the Queensland Symphony Orchestra. When does that actually start? It starts uh, September 19, so in a few weeks. Fantastic. So one of the things I love to do when I'm talking on my podcast is talk to CEOs who are probably about, you know, 90 to 120 days into their role. Uh, uh, but I, this is, a, you know, a really interesting opportunity to talk to somebody before they've actually even started in their role. So, um, David... You're offered the role by the board. Um, welcome, you know, to your new role as CEO. What's the mandate? Well, I think the, the mandate uh, is to continue um, the phenomenal work done by my predecessor, uh, Sophie Gillies, who's gone to Melbourne. Uh, she came in a few years ago and uh, made some big changes and, and set the organisation up for success, certainly as far as... Um, as far as resourcing goes and, and, and really looking at what the opportunities are for the orchestra in the next five to ten years. Mm-hmm. And this is an extraordinary time for the Queensland Symphony Orchestra because they've just employed uh, recently uh, a new music director, mm-hmm. which is uh, Alondra de la Parra. She is based out of Mexico City. She's a, a rising star uh, internationally in the kind of orchestral world. She's had a lot of media attention in the last few years. And there's a real opportunity, I think, for Queensland to not only um, further kind of cement itself as as a leading uh, arts company in the state of Queensland, but beyond that in Australia and internationally. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, there is just uh, so many great opportunities available for the orchestra over the next five to ten years. And so when you're looking uh, at what is a massive uh market for entertainment and Mm -hmm. a market uh, that is becoming increasingly disrupted and fractured by, you know, people's ability to sit at home and watch Netflix and 
uh, how do you you know create a vision which is uh, compelling enough to not only retain the existing audience but to try and bring you know new people uh, to uh, watch performances? You know, it's all about programming, Pro- programming and community engagement. I mean, mm-hmm. the key here is is your program and how you program and understanding your uh, understanding your audiences and who you're talking to. And, of course, that is the greatest challenge for orchestras at the moment because you've got to re- retain your, uh, your core audience who are an older audience, 55-plus, um, who have very definite uh, ideals and thoughts. A lot of them know music very well. Um, they're often the ones also that write checks to support orchestras. And how do you balance that with... Uh, um, programming that attracts uh, a more diverse audience or a younger audience. Mm-hmm. And that speaks to looking at things like popular culture. Uh, there's no surprises that um, these uh, screenings of, of, of well-known films with a music score, a live music score, mm-hmm. uh, sell out and very popular. Uh, for example, the, the Queensland Symphony Orchestra in early October is doing a tribute to David Bowie. Those kinds of things are an important part of the programming mix and bringing people into um, the concert hall, whether it's uh, once or twice or three or four times a year, um, they start to, you start to build a relationship with these people mm-hmm. um, and a relationship with the brand, which is very important. Uh, the other component of that too is actually starting um, at a young age. I'm not as familiar with uh, Australia because I've been working in the US for a number of years. But that is what you do around uh, community outreach, music education, families and parents to get young people involved in either playing instruments or being involved in, in um, orchestral music or being exposed to that kind of music as mm-hmm. well. Mm-hmm. Um, because the studies that have been done that people that are exposed to this music or play instruments uh, and their younger lives are more likely to connect with it when, as adults. Mm-hmm, so it's mm-hmm. very, very important, um, the, the strategy around music education, community engagement, um, and community outreach. And so that's a part of the role of QSO then is to, uh, is to take that into the school system here, uh, or is that more a, a, a government-led initiative? Uh, I'm not as familiar with what's going on in Queensland uh, since I, I haven't studied it yet. I do believe uh, that there's a very strong music education program in Queensland schools, mm-hmm. um, which is great. And in fact, has one of the strongest pro- programs in the country is actually in Queensland. Um, but what the orchestra can do is work um, alongside uh, schools and, and the school system to augment that and um, provide programs that, that complement what's already happening in schools. Mm-hmm. And uh, the, the orchestra uh, has a great program already uh, um, of, around the whole state of Queensland in visiting communities, um, doing concerts, and working with uh, kids who are learning instruments to be involved with uh, uh, the orchestra and or- orchestral musicians. Right. Um, very, very important. Okay. And so uh, you start your role in the middle of September. Once you, uh, you know, get uh, your uh, feet under the table, so to speak, you know, what, what for you are the exciting first priorities for your role? Well, the first is, is setting up uh, parameters around working with a new music director. Um, and this is the first for Queensland Symphony Orchestra. They've had the, the chief conductor model. Um, the music director model is a model I know very well. It's a, a model that's that's very popular here in the US. 
Um, so setting up really boundaries, parameters, and and kind of short-term objectives around that and how that that's going to work for the orchestra. I feel like I already have a relationship with Alondra since um, we we Skype and talk almost every week. Okay. And, uh, I spent some time with her in Mexico City back in June, uh, which was great. Um, and one of my biggest focus too is that we have a number of open positions in the senior team. Mm-hmm. Um, so is to is to find the right fit for each of those positions. Mm-hmm. Very important uh, for um, the success of the of the orchestra is to to get the right people in the right positions. So that's going to be a big focus uh, over the next uh, three to six months. Mm-hmm. And um, I think for me, focus on core business. And the first year in any job is to spend time really understanding the 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 organization mm-hmm. the the stakeholders building relationships um, what's uh, what's the most important priorities for organization and moving forward and um, focusing on core business which is raising money and selling tickets mm-hmm. I note that you have quite a strong uh uh, involvement in um, fundraising and certainly uh, attracting corporate sponsorship and philanthropy and so on is such a critical element of uh, any arts-based or not-for-profit organisation. And I imagine that you know that's going to be a, a pretty strong focus uh, uh, moving forward as well. Well, absolutely. You know, uh, here in the US too, where there's little government funding um, in in the arts or actually in the non-profit sector. Um, fundraising and attracting corporate sponsorship and those kinds of things, philanthropy is absolutely critical. Mm-hmm. And um, it is also in Australia. Uh, yes, we we certainly have um, very important government partners that play a, a critical role in delivering programming and and uh, services to various communities across the arts. Um, but more and more so. Um, Philanthropy, fundraising, corporate sponsorship is 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 critical to the business model, um, and it's something that I actually really enjoy because mm-hmm. uh, really it's based on building relationships, mm-hmm. and um, that's really one of the things that I really uh, enjoy is just connecting with people. Mm, great. One of the uh, the main reasons for this particular podcast is for people who are aspiring uh, to uh, the role of CEO or uh, into uh, board careers is to listen to those who have walked the path before them and you know uh, pick up some um, learnings that may help them to accelerate their own careers. I know that through this conversation you've mentioned a number of times that you know things have happened kind of fortuitously uh you coincidentally you've received a call or you've been in right place right time but i'm sure at the same time you've developed some particular skills and and competencies which have allowed you to uh to rise through your career if you were to distill those into a, you know a few key learnings uh, what would they be i think the first thing is to re- build extensive networks mm-hmm. um and i, I think that's part of the reason why these various career opportunities for me have evolved uh, because I have these big networks that I kept up um, and uh, I still keep these networks going for mm-hmm. many, many years because you never know when uh, someone can help you. Mm-hmm. Um, you can call them as a resource or, again, an opportunity comes up and they think, oh, David might be interested or that person might be in- interested in that role. So that's very important. I, I think secondly is um, listening um, I, I think it's absolutely critical 
um, whether it's uh, it's your team or it's people in the community or it's you know whoever it might be, is to really listen um, uh, when uh, connecting with people and to understand who they are, to understand the business, um, and to me that's critical in forming you know strategies uh, and and, and long term goals and short term objectives. Uh, for an organization. So uh, active listening is absolutely critical to, to I think, success. Would you say that that's uh, a trait that you've inherently had or has there been some pivotal moment in your career where you've recognized that that's a skill that you needed to develop? I, I wouldn't say it's innate. Um, I think it's something that I've developed over a number of years. Um, I think it comes with maturity as well. Uh, when you get older and you start to realize that you don't know it all. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and I had some good advice along the way from, from various people who basically set me down and said, here's some things that worked for me um, and this might work for you. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, and then various people that you meet along the way that have influenced me um, or, or just touched me in a very um, deep way in the way that they communicated, mm-hmm. um, in the way that they, they operated in group situations or team situations. Um, and um, those things had some sort of deep impact on, on my, own, um, my own learning, I suppose. Okay, great. And uh, you're still you know, a relatively young guy and with a, a long uh, professional future ahead of you. You know, when you look further into the future, say, you know, five to 10 years from now, what are the kind of things that you're excited about potentially doing? Well, what I'm excited about this organization, I think, is as I build uh, relationships with the community in Queensland, with the musicians and, and specifically the Londra, I just see some wonderful opportunities to uh, take this orchestra internationally. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's something that I've always wanted to do. Um, I know it's something that Alondra interests her mm-hmm. and that, that there's, there's a real uh, opportunity here uh, to um, expand uh, the audience for this orchestra beyond the state of Queensland. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's probably one of my greatest um, uh, interests uh, down the track. Um, but more, I, th- I think more importantly too is, is setting the organization up for um, real long-term sustainability mm-hmm. and building those audiences that are very important. I mean, the biggest challenge for any orchestra at the moment is about um, financial stability in the long term and how do you develop those relationships with younger audiences mm-hmm. um, through programming. Mm-hmm. So. Mm, fantastic. And we've talked a lot about uh, work today. And so just to wind up this conversation, because I know that you've probably got plenty of things you need to get done uh, in the remainder of your day. Uh, when David's not at work, what are the kind of things that uh, you like to do to keep the tank full of petrol and, and keep you energised and excited about uh, uh, life in general? Um, anything in the outdoors. I'm a real out avid outdoor person. Right. I love to hike. I love the beach. I love the mountains. If I'm outside and I'm either in the mountains or by the water, um, I'm a happy guy. Fantastic. Uh, I'm an avid swimmer. That's my, my, I swim almost every day for an hour. Right. It keeps me active. Um, I'm an early riser, but I love to get up at sunrise and swim or, uh, or hike. 
Um, and um, the other thing that I absolutely love when I'm not working is travel. I mean, it's, there's, there's no coincidence that I've spent a good chunk of my career overseas. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that travel just expands your mind, meeting different cult- uh, people in different cultures, experiencing different things. Um, really, there's, there's nothing like it in the world. It's incredible. Oh, that's great. I imagine being an early riser, but working in the professions that you have, uh, where a lot of uh, your activity happens at uh, nighttime makes for a very long day. It does. Um, and I've learned how to balance that, um, I think. And um, although the great, one of the greatest joys for me, honestly, is to sit in a concert hall and, and listen to an orchestra playing. Um, and that brings a huge amount of joy mm-hmm. uh, to me. So getting up the next day early and doing my exercise, whatever, and, and getting on with work, uh, to me, isn't a chore. It's something that I love. Mm-hmm. Well, it's uh, obvious from all of our conversation today that you're extremely passionate about your work, and I'm sure that uh, the uh, Queensland Symphony Orchestra will uh, be uh, very grateful to have you at the helm, uh, leading it into the future. David, I really appreciate your time. Thanks very much, and uh, have a fantastic afternoon. Cheers. Thank you so much. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. Well, thanks again for joining me on the Aratake podcast. I hope you enjoyed that conversation. I'm looking forward to having you along for further episodes. And in the meantime, have a fantastic day.